Genesis chapter 15 in your pew Bibles, that's page 12. You don't have a Bible of your own, if you'll hunt around, there should be a brown pew Bible around, looks something like this. It's page 12 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a, a heifer and a goat and a, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was, getting, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years as you, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The land, yeah, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thank you, Avi. <laughs> so I was trying to spare him there. When I told him what to read, I was like, might be a little rough at the end. So thank you, Abby, for bravely reading. When somebody volunteers to read and you're like, yeah, it's going to be Old Testament. They're like, the nerves start to come up, you know. So if you'd like to read scripture or participate in worship, please reach out and let me know. It's not a special club. We want all of us to participate in the worship of God. This is not a performance. This is us as a body worshiping together. So we like for folks to be able to be involved. So just reach out to me or Mark and let, let us know you'd like to be involved. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's Word? Let's pray together. Father, we just pause now. Having sung to you and made offerings to you and prayed to you and um, heard your word word read. And now, Lord, we just pause and we open our hearts and we open our hands and we open our minds and we just say to you, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. For you have said that it is your word 
that has the power and is the only thing that has the power to transform us. Would you send your spirit to do that very thing this morning? Take your word and apply it to our hearts. That we would be changed, that we would see Jesus, that we would be moved to worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'll start with a question for the young people, the kids. Kids, do you ever make promises? Yeah, we got, okay, one here. Maybe it's to mom and dad or to each other or at school, you know, I promise. Or at other times, if you, do you ever have people make promises to you? One of the things that happens in my family is that whenever I tell my kids something's going to happen and something they're really excited about, something that they're probably going to have to wait for, they say, do you promise? Do you promise? It's like they, they need extra assurance because it's really hard to wait. It's really hard to not have that thing immediately and know I've just got to depend on what you're saying sometimes for quite a while. They want a promise in order to assure. But one of the things that's hard about promises is that it's so hard to just trust a word, to trust a promise. It's incredibly hard. We all know the the reality of having a promise broken. When somebody promises you something and they don't come through, it makes it all that much harder to then go on and go forth and trust a promise. Now, this idea of trusting a promise is really at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's a whole lot easier to make a promise than to trust a promise. You know this reality? You know, trusting in a promise is kind of like, it's kind of like learning to swim. I don't know if you've ever learned to swim, if you can remember back, if it was some time ago, if you've taught a child to swim. Uh, I've done this not too long ago. You know, you, you get down in a pool and you've got the child... And the child is like white knuckle gripping onto you if they don't know how to swim. I, I've had this reality with Bo. My little boy Bo, he's three years old, and he'll have a swimmy on. Okay, so there's, I know there's no chance I'm going to let you drown here. I'm right here. I have full confidence in the swimmy. But yet at the same time, he's holding on to me. He won't let go. He's, he's terrified. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reassuring him, and I'm saying, buddy, I promise. I promise I'm not going to let you drown. I promise I'm not going to let you sink under. And so what has to happen for somebody to learn how to swim? you got to first learn how to float. And how do you learn how to float? It's kind of an interesting dynamic. you got to let go. What do you do to float if you ever learn how to float? To float, you have to do nothing, right? I mean, what... Our nature is, is to do just the opposite, you know, to flail about or to grab. And if you're in the water, if you're in deep water and you're doing that, what's going to happen? You're not going to float, you're going to sink when you're thrashing about. But when you let go and you release, uh, something very interesting begins to happen. You begin to float, especially if you have a swimmy on. But that, that, that's the reality of trust, particularly trusting a promise. And that's why it's so hard to do because you have to release control and you have to depend upon something else. You you have to stop thrashing about. And that is one of the hardest things about the Christian life is to live in a place of trust and faith and dependence upon promises that God has made. 
It's particularly hard whenever life doesn't make sense. Whenever circumstances in your life are hard, you don't know what's going to happen, you can't see how this is going to work out. And part of the reality about God's promises and the reality about faith is you can't see the reality. You can't see how it's going to work out. You can't see what God is going to do. Hebrews makes that very clear. That's the essence of faith. It's trusting in something you can't see. And that's what makes it so very hard. And so in the Christian life, so often, we meet these very hard, painful circumstances. We, things don't look like they're going to work out. We, we can't see how something's going to be fulfilled in our life, how God's going to do what he's promised to do. And what's the most natural thing to do in the world? Start taking control. Start, start finding a way to make it happen on my own. You know, give lip service to God's promises. Yeah, I believe in all that, but really what I'm depending on in my life is me. And that's why we're so filled with anxiety and fear and all of this stuff. We're looking at the life of Abraham in our new series here. And, and as we talked about last week, the life of Abraham, this, this man, this person, Abraham, is so fundamental for understanding the Christian story, for understanding the whole Bible. In fact, everything that will come after this man is building on top of this man's life and his relationship with God. And not only that, as we look at the life of Abraham, he is a model for us. He is the ultimate model for what does it look like to walk in relationship with God. So as we're looking at at Abraham, we're seeing a picture of our life. And Abraham's story in Christ, we're brought into his family Abraham's story is our family. As as we're reading this, we're looking at our story. If you belong to Christ this morning, this is a part of our story. As we look at his life, we're learning what does it look like to live in relationship with God. Here's what we're going to see in our passage. The Christian life, at its heart, is a life trusting in the promises of God. That's at the heart of it. So here's what we'll see in our passage. We'll see what God promises. What are those promises that he makes to us? What part do we play? And how are all of his promises fulfilled in Jesus? That's what we'll see in our passage. So if you were here last week, you know that we started in chapter 12, and that was the call of Abraham. God calls, comes to Abraham out of the blue, calls him out of his former life, out of the world, sends him to a place he doesn't know where he's going, and he gives him this huge promise I'm going to make you into a great nation. All peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to, you know, just huge blessings. Then whenever we come here to chapter 15, he's taking that same promise and he's deepening it. He's fleshing it out. Uh, Abraham sees a little bit more of what exactly that promise entails. And yet at the same time, God solidifies it for Abraham. Now there's two essential pieces of this promise that God makes to Abraham. He promises him seed and land. Now seed, I'm not talking about agricultural seed. That the, the actual Hebrew word of what God keeps promising to Abraham is the Hebrew word for seed. But it's what it's referring to is an heir, descendant, seed in that particular way. Remember, God had said to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. All nations on earth are going to be blessed through you and your family, your children, your descendants. Now remember, who is he making this promise to for seed? He's making this promise to a man who's in his upper 70s, who's married to a wife who's also in her 70s, 
and has been barren. That is, she's never been able to conceive children. So at this point in their life, they've come to face the fact that we're never going to have children. In the ancient world, it's painful enough in our own day, in the ancient world, your descendants was your name, your identity, your legacy. It was huge. So here at the end of their life, they're facing the reality that they're never going to have children. And God has come and made this astounding promise. So as we look at our passage, the structure of it is first, he addresses this promise of seed, of heir, of descendants. And then in the second, that's in verses 1 through 6. And then in the second part, 7 through 15, 18, is dealing with this second part of the promise, which is for land which is the land of Canaan, as we see. Before it was a land he didn't know where he was going. Here it takes shape as, he, as we begin to see this is the land of Canaan. So first of all, as God comes to him initially, each part kind of follows this structure. God comes with a promise. Do not be afraid, Abram. This is verse 1. I am your shield, your very great reward. Then a question by Abraham. Now, Abraham wants to... He's asking God here, can you help me with this promise? Can you help me to understand how this is going to go down? Now, Abraham's trusting, but yet at the same time is saying, God, can you help me out here? And in verse 2, he says to him, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And he begins to go on and he begins to say, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but maybe it's going to work out this way. I know a way that this can take place. What about one of my slaves? Can I adopt them? Can they be this heir that you're talking about? Can that be the way that all this promise takes place? I got a solution for you, God. You ever done that? God's promise looks way too big and you come up with a solution. Kind of get God off the hook because it's too big. You know, God kind of overshot himself with the promise. You know, it's just, it's just a little too big for him. And you come and you say, God, i got a solution for you. You don't have to go back on your promise, but we make this thing work in this way. This was actually a common cultural practice. If someone did not have an heir, they could adopt uh, a servant in their household as their child, and that would become the heir of their estate. So Abraham, he's coming up with solutions. And do you see how God responds here? God doubles down, so to speak. God doesn't say, oh, oh, you're taking me off the hook, Abraham. He doubles down in the biggest way. And look what he does, so gracious. He doesn't say, Abraham, just believe what I'm telling you. He says, let me show you something. And he takes Abraham outside the tent at night. And he says, look up at the sky, Abraham. Do you see the stars? Have you ever been out in the country, way out in the country at night, far away from any street lights or anything, no moon out, and you look up at the sky? It's hard to get that experience nowadays, but it's breathtaking. I mean, you, you, you never conceive just how many stars are in the sky until you're in a place of just blackness. And he has Abraham look up at the sky, and he can see all of the billions of stars and galaxies. And God says to Abraham, can you count those stars? Go on, give it a shot. Can you count the stars? So shall your seed be. He doubles down. He says, now I'm not, Abraham, I'm not just talking about one child here. I never was. I'm talking about a people that will come from you 
that no one can count. You see, he takes his promise and just multiplies it to the nth degree. Then on the second part, we see him dealing with this promise of land in verse 7. Again, it begins, verse 7, with Abraham's question. Uh, Actually, verse 7 with God's promise. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And then Abraham's question in response, verse 8. O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Lord, again, can you help me here? How's this going to happen? Because again, Abraham is looking at this land that God is saying, I'm going to give this to you, and it's not just unclaimed territory. It is filled with nations. That's the names of which Abi was able to avoid trying to read at the bottom. It's filled with nations. And Abraham's looking at this and he's saying, I don't get that. How's that going to happen? I'm one man with a small family. How would that ever happen that I would go and take possession of this land? And what does God do here? Just believe me. No. He gives him a very powerful visual experience. And it's very mysterious. Did you know that? Notice that as Abi was reading here? What does he say to him? Uh... Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. What? <laughs> okay, I get the star experience here, but now, now, what are we doing here? You want me to go get some animals? Yes. Yes, he has Abraham go and get a number of animals. And here's what he does. Abraham takes the animals and he sacrifices them. And he cuts the animals in half. It's all here. We just read it here. And he splits these animals apart. So you've got half of the animal on this side, half of the animal on this side. And as the scene is being described, you know, it's it's, the narrator is just setting the scene here as darkness begins to fall over the evening. The sun is setting and Abraham falls into a deep trance. So this is like a vision where Abraham is, is watching this take place but yet is, is entranced. And all of a sudden, what happens? A torch, a flaming torch in a smoking fire pot. I'm, I'm imagining that's like a chimney. Anybody have a chimney at their house? Like I'm imagining a chimney, not a chimney on wheels, but a, just a floating chimney, okay? And there's smoke coming up out of it. And there's a flame, whether there's a torch beside it or the flames coming up out of it. I'm not really sure. We don't know. It's very mysterious. And it comes down and it passes in between the halves of the animals. And as God does that, he takes a vow. He makes a vow to Abraham in that moment. Did you see what he said? Uh, To your descendants, second part of verse 18, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. What's happening here? Well, part of it is helpful to understand something about this culture. What we're watching here take place is a covenant. That's what he says in verse 18. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, we talked about this some last week, but this this concept of a covenant is absolutely huge in Scripture. The word for covenant, the, the Hebrew word for covenant, berit, is used over 455 times in the scriptures. So it's kind of an important thing. The only word used more is Lord. 
Okay, so it's a huge concept. And a covenant in the ancient world was a very specific kind of a relationship. A relationship two parties would enter into and they would swear an oath to one another. The beginning of the relationship was formed by a promise, an oath. Uh, They locked themselves in at the beginning of the relationship. And a part of what they would do is this very ceremony here. Two parties, two nations, two kings, they would enter into a covenant with each other, and they would do this right here. They would sacrifice animals, cut them in half, make a path, and both parties would walk between the halves of the animal. And when they would do that, it was a very symbolic way of saying, if I don't keep up my part of this covenant, let what has taken place with these animals happen to me. Let me be sacrificed. Let my blood be spilt. It was a way of taking this promise and just anchoring it down in the ground. And that's what a covenant was. This relationship that was sealed by this. In fact, the very word for covenant is actually not just to make a covenant, but to cut a covenant. It was always associated with the shedding of blood, which is a way of picturing this is a life and death oath for me. So the amazing thing that happens here, just get this. Abraham says, how do I know I'm going to have this land? And God enters into a covenant with Abraham and essentially saying, if I don't do this, let me be ripped apart. God's locking himself into this. He's banking his very existence on the promise he's just made to Abraham. That's astounding. He doesn't need this. He doesn't need Abraham. But yet graciously has come and promised himself, his very life, to Abraham. So we see these pictures of these two promises rooted down in these very visual experiences in a covenant. So the question becomes, what's Abraham's part? Because in a covenant, there's always two parties. There's always two responsibilities. What is Abraham's part in this covenant relationship? And that is in verse 6. Now, in the structure of the passage, both of these promises sit on two ends of a centerpiece, which is verse 6. Verse 6 is the pivot of the whole story. Part of what the narrator is trying to do is focus your attention on verse 6. Verse 6 is showing what was Abraham called to do. Now, look at this. Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, that's a very important verse if you're a reader of the New Testament. Now, think about what he's saying here. Abraham takes God's promises, which just are so far-fetched, seem so impossible, do not seem to match the circumstances of his life, and Abraham decides in that moment, I believe you. I trust you. I will bank my life on that. In fact, you can see that he truly does believe because of his life. Because he leaves everything. He gives up everything for those promises because he believes God. Now, here's the amazing significance of that. It says, because on the basis of his faith, God credits righteousness to Abraham. Now, righteousness is like this perfect standing. It's as if Abraham has been someone who's kept all of God's commands. All of God's demands, all of the the laws and responsibilities of the covenant relationship, 
Righteousness is God looking at him and saying, I'm just crediting you as someone who's perfectly kept up your end of the bargain. Even though he hasn't. You know, to credit something, I, I had this experience this past week. Have you ever had your cell phone bill? You know, it shows up. I feel like every month my cell phone bill, they find some way for it to be more than we agreed on. And so then you've got to spend hours, you know, fighting with them on the phone. And finally we get to the point where they say, okay, you're right. We're going to credit your account. Now, what happens whenever they credit your account? They take a certain amount of money and they put it into your account. It wasn't there before and it's there now. It now belongs to you. It wasn't you, but yours before, but now it's yours. That's what happens whenever you credit something. That's what God's doing with Abraham. Abraham simply trusted God. He was a sinner. He wasn't perfect, even in his faith. We're going to see in the next chapter, he messes up royally. But yet, on the basis of his faith, just simply trusting in the promises of God, God looks upon him and says, I declare you to be righteous in my sight. I now look upon you as one who has perfectly kept the law. That is the heart of the gospel. As as the New Testament will use that very verse over and over and over to describe to us justification by faith. That on the basis of a trust in Jesus and His work, God looks upon us and credits righteousness to us. It's not ours. We're sinners. We mess up before and after God justifies us. But but positionally, we now stand before Him as righteous. See, the Christian life is not be good, Try hard, do good stuff, try to keep God's commands and laws, and if you do that enough, then God will accept you. And if you don't, well, then He will reject you. That is not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world. But the Christianity is the very opposite. In Christianity, you get the acceptance before the performance. In Christianity, you come to Him on the basis of pure faith alone and say, I'm trusting in what He has done, all the promises based upon Jesus, All that he has secured, that's my hope. And God credits righteousness. He says, you are now righteous in my sight. In spite of everything that's true of you, you're fully accepted in my sight. If we could just get that, because we're always wrestling with this, am I good enough? Do you love me enough? Am I accepted enough? And we're basing it on how sincere we are, how hard we're trying, or how our performance is going. And yet Christianity starts at the beginning. As someone comes and puts their trust in Jesus and all of his promises, at the very beginning God says, you're righteous. You are righteous in my sight. That is the heart of the gospel. You see, it's the heart of the Christian life. The Christian life is lived out of this place of saying, I am trusting in your promises to me. And that's the heart of it. And that's how I'm living my life. That was Abraham's life. Now it's important to see, and this is hard in the Bible Belt, whenever we think of belief, we think of just believing a certain set of facts in our head. It happens all the time in the Bible Belt. Yeah, I know I get Jesus and I know what he's done. And sure, I believe in that. And yet it has no impact on your life. And you see, the Bible says that is not saving faith. Saving faith always results in obedience. It always results in a changed life. Why? Because you really believe it. 
You really believe he's done this. You really believe he's promised this. And so if you really believe it, what do you do? You live it out. And if you don't, you don't really believe it. We can see that about any area of our life. But saving faith is not obedience. Do you see the distinction there? Obedience always results, but saving faith is pure trusting in his promises alone. It's the heart of the Christian life. So, the question becomes, what are these promises for us? And let me just give a plug here for for each one of us becoming a person that studies the Scriptures. You know, when we study the Scripture, we're not just checking a box or doing something we're supposed to do. We're studying God's promises to us. That's what Scripture is. It's what He has promised locked himself into, what he's accomplished, what he's promised to do, and how else are we going to know his promises unless we study his promises in Scripture? We need to know what those promises are. But here's a, here's a critical thing to see, and this is 1 Corinthians uh, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says this, All God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Every promise that God has ever made finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So how do we see this in Abraham? God comes to Abraham and he makes these huge promises. How is that promise only fulfilled in Jesus? And I think this is just amazing to see. Did you notice in the description of the covenant ceremony, who passes between the animals? One person. And it's God. Why not Abraham? Why why doesn't Abraham pass through to to declare his oath, to declare his loyalty? Why doesn't he have to? Because God knows this from the very beginning. In order for this covenant to hold, i got to hold up both ends of the covenant. See, God knew even then, he would of course keep his end, but he knew that his people... The problem is on the inside, it's in the heart. He knew that the only way for his people to be covenant keepers, is for him to step into their shoes and keep it on their behalf. You see, he knew even then the only way this will ever work is through Jesus. So as Jesus comes and becomes one of us in covenant with God, the perfect covenant keeper, he kept covenant with God perfectly. He obeyed all of God's commands all of God's laws in perfect devotion and love for the Father and in love for His neighbor. He kept it perfectly. Why? So that He would keep covenant in our place. And then to rescue us, He would be torn apart because of our covenant violation, because of our disobedience. That He, just like the animals were torn apart and sacrificed in the covenant ceremony, even then God knew I'm going to have to do this. Jesus knew I will be torn apart. And it's the only way for my people to be brought into covenant with God. You see, if we are in Jesus, we are covenant keepers through faith in Him. That's how He can look on Abraham and say, you are righteous in my sight. You've kept all the demands on the law. What are you talking about? Just the next chapter contradicts that. How can we, people like us, be righteous before him? Because he was righteous in our place. And if you are trusting in him, you are brought into union with him. And his record is your record. 
and the promises that we have in Jesus, that we are now accepted by the Father, we are now righteous in His sight, we are now loved as sons and daughters, parts of His family, that that He looks upon us with acceptance and delight. Amazing promises. That's what we got to know in Scripture. I need every day to preach those promises to myself. But yet the promises are not just spiritual, as wonderful as those are. They're also physical. Seed and land, how is that fulfilled in Jesus? Well, we are promised that one day he will make for himself a multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. It will be won by the gospel of Jesus. He will make us into a great nation. And we're part of the evidence here. Abraham never would have believed all these blonde-haired, blue-eyed Gentiles sitting in a room worshiping his grandson. Never. We are a part of this fulfillment. And yet land, how does Jesus fulfill that? Jesus tells his followers, you're going to inherit the earth. You know, he actually says that. Did you know that Abraham actually knew that he was promised not just Canaan, but the whole world? That's what Paul says in Romans 4. He knew that he was going to be heir of the world. And we, as the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham, will one day reign over the new earth with Christ forever. You know that's a promise? Do you know it's a promise sealed by a covenant? Sealed by the very tearing of the body of Jesus? That belongs to us. So what happens is we believe and walk by those promises. What happens in us? This. We are empowered to leave this world behind and move forward to the promised land. We're able to let go of the things of this world. Now that is so hard to do, especially in our culture where we have so much stuff. You see, if we really believe, I'm going to inherit the world. You know what it empowers you to do? To let go of security and comfort. It, it allows you to let go of all of your hobbies and vacations and success and money and health. Oh my gosh, we're so obsessed with health. And, and, and physical beauty, all of these things that our world says, hey, this is living. Have some experiences. Ashley and I were watching TV yesterday and every commercial that was coming on was about an experience. That, that's what our culture is pumping us now. Not as much you need to have stuff, but you need to have cool, unique experiences. And you need to be able to take a selfie and show it to everybody on Facebook. Right? Don't live for experiences. We don't have to live for this world. We can give up in this life. We can sacrifice. We can lose. We can, as Martin Luther said in his great hymn, let, ki- let kin and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do we believe that? If we do, we can leave the world behind. We can give our life entirely to the building of God's kingdom here. Let me just close with this and we'll have just a second to process it together. Hebrews 11 is a great summary of the life of Abraham. And here's what it says about Abraham's life. And I think a great calling to us if we believe the magnitude of these promises. 
All these people, talking about Abraham and his family, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. What if we lived that way? Like this life is like a breath. Aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. It's better. The new earth will be so much better than this life. Guaranteed. Therefore, here's your promise. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. He's prepared a city for us. A heavenly one. Whose builder and architect is God. And one day, with the return of Christ, he will bring it down to the earth. And we will reign with him in resurrected bodies forever. That's a huge promise. Huge promise. Let's stop there and take a few moments to interact and talk about it a little bit. How does that strike you, disturb you, convict you, excite you? What's happening in you as you consider the promises and its implications on our life? For me, I think it's an everyday remark. You have to say it over and over and over and over and listen to this sermon over and over. Yeah. Even if it's a thousand times a day. Yep. Because I will always try to fix and try to do it myself and get in control. Yeah. And I have a little sticky in my car that says that, you know, if I'm just, just overthinking things and, and overproductive, over, uh, overthinking and overfixing, uh-huh. give it to God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this whole sermon is all about. Yeah. Every day. It's not just listening to it and, and waiting for next week. Yes. It's like, oops, I'm yeah. trying to fix it again. Okay, sorry, God. I'll yeah. give it to you. I'll stop thinking about this. Yes. And once you give it to God, you can't take it back. You've got to yeah. give it to him and, and leave it there. Yeah. That's great. So that was powerful. That was good. Absolutely. You know, if, if, this, if you only hear these promises once a week for an hour on Sunday morning, that's a great starting place, but that's not going to do it because you're hearing all the other lies 24-7. Right, so we have got to learn how to take God's promises in Scripture and understand them and apply them to our heart. As we've said over and over here, we've got to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves constantly so that we actually begin to believe it more than everything the world tells us or our flesh tells us or the devil tells us. Hutch, can you, uh, you do this very well, but I need reminded of it. How... How would you encourage us to, if the reality is there's a better country coming, and what does that mean for today when I, I just, maybe I just want to, I just want to disengage. Yep. I just want to, I want to live, maybe I just want to have some comfortable experiences like those commercials. Yeah. To just get by. Yeah. And just yeah. until the bad, you know, is all done. Yep. So what's that mean for, you know, tomorrow, Monday morning? Yeah. That's a great question. And, and, you know, we can hear this and say, oh, my gosh, I, I shouldn't have fun. I shouldn't have any hobbies. I shouldn't have. No, that's not the thing. The thing is, what are you living for? 
And that's always the question. You know, we talked about last week about how it's usually good things that become ultimate things in our life. And that's where the problem lies is because, you know, hey, in our culture, we live in the most wealthy, comfortable, secure, and healthy society that's ever existed in the history of the world, despite what the media is telling you about how horrible everything is. It's never been this good in the world. Now, I I have concerns about our country, but we got it great. And one of the problems about that is that the more comfortable you are, the more your heart is tempted to fall in love with the things of this world. And so it's all about this heart issue of saying, what am I living for? You know, am I living for my comfort, my security, my peace, or am I living for God's kingdom? You know, if I'm living in light of something that's coming, then that means that I'm probably going to give up and forego a lot of the things I could have now in order to live for that thing that's coming, in order to bear witness for that thing that's coming. So it's not a do this, don't do this. It's, it's more of a, you've got to understand your heart. You've got to understand the things that are grabbing hold of your heart. And, and, but it's very practical. I mean, it's, you know, you walk into work tomorrow, the question is, which world am I living for? If I'm living for here, then my reputation is going to be very fragile, and I'm, I'm going to be looking to benefit myself and other people. But if I'm living for a world that's coming, then I have courage to take risks. You know, I'm not afraid of what people think about me or what's going to be the result of this. Does that help? Really what we need is a lot of conversations together about that, working it out together in our Monday through Friday realities. It's all about the question of what are you living for? What is your heart set on? And you can usually tell by what wins out, you know. If if it's a really pretty day outside in the, the... uh, you, you got a Sunday coming up, it's been a hard week, and, and on Sunday you got beautiful weather, and the water's nice. What wins? It's practical. What wins? You know, what wins whenever money is tight, and, and God's called me to be generous with my life and my money? What, what happens, what wins then? You see, it's very, very practical. I struggle with the, or you feel the battle of comfort, you know, and like God will call you these things. This is, I love this part of the Bible, Genesis 15, and but God will call us to, to do those hard things and to foster, to adopt, to get out in the community, and we don't want to. And then you get yeah. the people on Monday morning going, oh, you didn't go fishing, you didn't go do all these things. And yeah. And uh, then you start to question, oh, I need, I need that, instead yeah. of really dying to ourselves. Yeah, you know? that's it. It's very practical. Carrie? Um, I think, the, well, the main thing, as you were speaking, just like I think I was, again, feeling overcome with just this sense of longing. Mm. Um, that this conversation always brings up for me. Mm. Um, that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah. It just like ignites in me a lot yeah. of emotion mm-hmm. um, when I let it. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing that for some reason struck me this time around is you were talking about um, God crediting Abraham with righteousness right there at the beginning. Um, I've heard that before, and I, I've been reading uh, the Psalms lately, and there are a lot of Psalms that, like, the psalmist, like, claims righteousness and, like, asks for, is basically like, God, I'm righteous, and there's all these evil people, so help me. Mm-hmm. And those have always been really difficult for me because I'm like, I'm not righteous. Like, yeah. none of these psalms apply to me. Yeah. Um, and I, for some reason, that just struck me today. Of yeah. Like, the psalmist that's writing these understands that he, his righteousness is, it, he's not saying, I've been good, God, treat yeah. me good. Yeah. He's saying, like, he knows these promises. Yes. He knows that he's righteous in God's sight, yeah. regardless of what he's done. And, and therefore, he has the right mm-hmm. to ask for God's protection yep. and for his justice yeah. and for his love and care. And yes. I think that, like, the power that God has given us um, and the access just really struck me. Yep. Like, the full meaning of what it means to be heirs of God and his righteousness. Yep. And even now, like, I feel excited, more excited to go read the Psalms rather than being overwhelmed with guilt. Yeah. I can actually, like, enjoy them. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think that's... And when the psalmist says that, he means loyalty. When he says righteousness, read loyalty. Lord, I've been loyal to you. I'm in covenant with you. I've been faithful. You know, I'm trusting in you. My heart's loyal. But even that, yeah, because you know it's not perfect. But you have his righteousness that, that is the anchor there. And I, let me just say also on that longing piece, that's a huge part. Because we talked about this in the fall, about how all the images that are coming at us from the world are trying to get our heart to long for certain visions of the good life. Well, what do we have to do with these promises? We have to let the imagination of our heart really ride on these promises and be like, wow, the new earth. You know, you, you think you had an awesome hiking experience yesterday? Wait till the new earth. You know, you got to go visit Paris? Wait till you see Paris and the new earth. You know, it's got to get real and tangible for us rather than just ethereal like clouds. Like we think whenever it says, you know, talking about the life that's to come, we, we're thinking clouds and playing harps. That's not going to override the visions of like a fast car that I just saw on a commercial, right? Our imagination has got to really ride with this vision of Jesus saying, you're going to inherit the earth. You got to let that get a hold of your emotions, visions like that. Dustin. Um, Yeah, so um, this is more from where you quoted in Hebrews, and I guess 15, but uh, especially like the yearning for home uh, is, is incredibly, it's a very powerful thing for me because I've never, like I lived in 18 houses by the time I was 18, and then with the whole three-year trip, um, yeah. I just remember constantly just my heart yelling out, I just, I just want to go home. Yeah. And it was a very non-solid thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I was really revisited with this just this week um, because I watched this movie that was a deep, a deep reflection of the suffering in this world and, and just the pain 
and the heartache, and I started beginning, I began thinking about where my mama is in life right now. Mm-hmm. She, is, she is in an incredibly dark place. And um, there was this strong temptation to despair. Um, but um, as I reflected just on God's promises and how he has been faithful to me, I realized if what I believe is true, there is so much hope in me actually stepping out and pouring into the life of my mother and pouring into the life of people who suffer yeah. that I don't have to despair and that, that, that yearning for a home is something very tangible yeah. whenever I'm looking at people suffering and I'm stepping in to help. So I think yeah. one of the applications um, of this sort of this idea is that we can afford to suffer, we can afford to risk, knowing that our risk and our suffering into the life of other peoples is going to culminate in a home for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for ourselves. So yeah. that, that was one way that this kind of like... That's great. ...met with something this yeah, week. Yeah, that's um, huge. Thank you for sharing that. I think the implication on suffering is huge. And suffering is one of those things that our culture teaches us to be terrified of. Whatever you do, avoid suffering. And yet, God's calling us into it because life comes through it. So let me close this in prayer. Go ahead and call our musicians up and we'll close the closing hymn. Let's pray together. Father, would you come, would you work in us as a people? Would you take your promises and just root them into our hearts that we would know that we have been brought into covenant with you and we have a covenant-keeping God and And it is through dependence upon your promises that we live. Come and work that in us as a body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.